You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Judges. As Jeff mentioned just, just a little bit ago, we're changing things up a bit on where we're going for the next little while. Um, uh, it, it seemed fitting to do that. Fitting because we live in a time where the right thing to do is celebrated. Uh, we live in a time where it's the right thing to do uh, to express that gender is fluid. Where, where it's the right thing to do to cancel anyone who disagrees you with you. Where it's the right thing to do uh, to proclaim racial injustices over and above other and all other injustices where the right thing to do is to value the choice of a woman to the destruction of unborn babies, where the right thing to do is to mock your parents because of their naive thinking and the way in which they raised you, where the right thing to do is to use biblical sayings like love your neighbor yet deny the God of the Bible. But what if God says that the right that is celebrated by our culture is actually wrong. Then what? That's, that's why it's the right time to get into the book of Judges because God's people, the Israelites, were at a crossroads. The, the choice was before them every single day. Were they going to look to the Lord as their God or were they going to submit themselves to the right and good ways of their culture? And really, this book goes on to explain over and over again how God's people continue to fail in that task, how God's people continue to turn from knowing, loving, and obeying God to doing what Judges says uh, twice towards the end, doing what was right in their own eyes. Tim Keller says that Judges can be described as despicable people doing deplorable things or trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. In fact, even the heroes, uh, the judges themselves, become increasingly flawed and failing. But all is not, not lost. And we need this more than ever because in this book, we find out about our merciful God who's in control of all things, who is long-suffering, who is completely faithful to his covenant people, despite their constant rejection of his good purposes for their lives. So let's get into the book and see what's going on. Uh, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, look there in the text with me if you have a Bible, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, there's a lot of backstory that's needed to unpack this verse, but the, the simplistic gist is that God's people had been promised the land of Canaan hundreds of years before to a man named Abraham. And that promise goes to Abraham's son, Isaac, and Isaac has two sons. What are their names? Jacob and Esau. And the promise goes to Jacob, and he has how many sons? And one of those, Joseph, uh, finds himself as the final patriarch in the book of Genesis. Now, Joseph dies, 
And the people of God are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses dies and a man named Joshua is raised up. And through the leadership of Joshua, the land is finally given to the Israelites. Now they are in the promised land. That land that God had told them about that was theirs and that was going to be a blessing to them and that was going to be for the glory of God and the good of his people. Now, verse 1, if God's people had already been given the promised land, why does the text say that they need to be fighting the Canaanites? So here's the deal. On a national level, Joshua had gone into the land of Canaan and he had penetrated the very heart of Canaan. Uh, he He had gotten into the city of Jericho and a city to the west called Ai. And that's, that's where they had done uh, the most work. And it essentially, it, it divided the Canaanites into two. And then, uh, what Joshua does is he goes to the south, defeating them, which is basically what the, the book of Joshua is all about. God doing for his people what he said he would do. You guys are going to have this land. This is going to be for you. And then they head to the north. And all in all, uh, Joshua leads about 31 battles, and he establishes a a presence of Israelites in this land. And then uh, they divide Canaan up into uh, so that the 12 tribes could each have a place. And then their leader, Joshua, dies. And so that's where we are at verse 1. Israel now has the responsibility of doing on a local level what has already been done at a national one. Now, I actually want you to hear uh, what God had them to do uh, and how they were to do it. So turn back with me a few pages to Joshua chapter 23. And, uh, and that's actually, although our text is Judges 1, uh, I want us to stand and read for Joshua 23 this morning. Uh, Would you stand with me to honor God's word? And this is Joshua's charge to Israel's leaders. Joshua 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong. Remember this to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, 
Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that no one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I I want you to keep that in mind, that God's people had been promised that this land was going to be theirs, that that there was no way around that, that it was theirs. It was promised to them. The Lord God had already given it to them. So God's people have their task. All they have to do is settle the land. It's given to them. Now they just need to work it, settle it. The Lord is going to push the people back, but they're just to drive the people out of sight. They're not to mix, as we just heard, with the Canaanites in any way. They aren't to mention or call on their gods. They aren't to intermarry with the Canaanites. They are to destroy the Canaanites. And when they've done so, they're to take their houses and their orchards and their vineyards. God's people are to establish in their communities what the call of Deuteronomy 6 is. They're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their might, with all their soul. And God's word is to be displayed everywhere. It's to be displayed in their homes and on the outside of their homes. It's to be be talked about in their coming and in their going and in their lying down. God's word is to be preeminent in this very society. And God's word is to be continued on. It's to be taught by moms and dads so that the children would hear of God and that they would know of God and they might live according to his ways. That is what the people of God are to do as they settle the promised land. And this nation of Israel is to stand out in the midst of wicked nations. Not so that people would look at them and say, man, what a pious people. What a a devoted people the Israelites are. No, it was so that the surrounding nations would say, what a God they serve. Look at how holy their God is. Let us lay down and lay aside our idols and and put away the worship of our impotent gods and serve him. He's the one and only true God. And so they're settling the land of Canaan with all of this in mind. And they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing when we come to verse 1. They find themselves without a leader, Remember, uh, Joshua is now dead, and they begin to inquire of God. God, what would, you, what would you have us to do? How are we to settle this land? Who's going to go first? Verse 2, if you're looking in the text with me, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. 
And I don't have time this morning to dive fully into this, but Genesis 49 tells us why Judah is going for first, okay? Judah is the fourth born of Jacob. Why, why does he go first? It's, it's to him who the blessing of leadership is given to in Genesis chapter 49, and it's his line in which there is coming a future king. But right now, as the book of Judges tells us, there is no king. And so there to settle the land and to make the glory of God known, Judah goes with the promise of God. This is done, Judah. All you have to do is trust me. All you have to do is rely on me. I've given this land into your hand. Now we're going to start moving. Judah enlists his brother Simeon in verse 3. Look there with me. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, hang on, let me stop. I'll I'll go ahead and preface this. Uh, Would you just give me grace as we read along in the text this morning with all of these names, okay? Uh, The the secret sometimes as you read the Bible is uh, to just act confident, okay? And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. Uh, But would you just give grace as, as we go through these names? It's really important, not that you know exactly how to pronounce the names, but that you know the significance behind the names. Why are they there? Why has God talked about this particular person and these particular people, okay? So now that I've given you that preface, let's continue on. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, verse 3, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him. I'm not supposed to mess up that word. And defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, just so you know, this is one of the most graphic books, if not the most graphic book in all of the Bible, okay? And this is just the beginning of that graphic nature. Uh, so uh, just so you hear that, verse 7, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, they've gone up into battle, the people have. They're victorious, and they meet this man we see in the text named the Lord of Bezek. And what do they do? When they, when they find him, they cut off his thumbs, and they cut off his big toes. Uh, he, he essentially can't do anything anymore. And I, I pause here to offer us some help. Often, when we read the Bible or others question us about the Bible, one particular question seems to rise up often. And it's this, why in the world, in the Bible, uh, where your God, who you, you say is a God of love and a God of peace and a God of justice, why in the world is he telling his own people to destroy other people? Well, Adonai Bezek, a man who is not one of God's own, an enemy of God, an enemy of God's people actually answers that very question for us. Because Adonai Bezek, the Lord of Bezek, recognizes that it is the Lord who's in control and that he has gone against the Lord, that he has committed an injustice against him. And as a result, when you commit an injustice against a holy God, 
You have to suffer the due consequences. He has received the justice that is due him, and he recognizes it, and he says it. You see, it wasn't arbitrary, the Israelites taking out the Canaanites. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 15, just before God God covenants alone with Abraham, he tells him that his people are going to be sojourners in a land for 400 years. And then they're going to be coming back to a land now that is theirs afterwards, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, God says there in Genesis 15. The Amorites are the Canaanites. God had been waiting 400 years to give them what was due them. It wasn't that God was evil. It was, hear this, that the Canaanites were evil. They were wicked. They were immoral. They were detestable before God. And it was time that God's people had their land to make the glory of God known. So Judah continues to fight and conquer in the lowlands. Now verse 9. Look there in the text with me. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly uh, Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And then the author, who we aren't sure of, he zeroes in on this particular family and this individual, and it's that of Caleb. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, verse 13, Caleb's younger brother captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephtha and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Now, here in the text, uh, we're probably getting lost a little bit at this point. Caleb is a man who does exactly what the Lord says. He's the man who we, we want to emulate ourselves after. He's a man who obeys God and has faith in his promises. Now, Caleb's little brother marries his daughter, and Caleb wants them to be able to enjoy all that God has prepared for him. Remember, this is what they're supposed to have. This is God's promised land, the land of all the blessings that come along with it. This is a microcosm, what we experience here in the family of Caleb, what is exactly supposed to happen for the entire nation of Israel. They're to have everything that God wants them to have. They're to live in the land of plenty. They're to live in a land where righteousness and justice flow. 
Verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country just as he was supposed to. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron, the text says. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Now, wait a second. This seems to be in the story the first mention of an unsuccessful mission. Remember, God said clearly, we saw it in Joshua 23, this is what you're supposed to do. I've already given the land into your hand. You just need to go and drive the Canaanites out. But all of a sudden, we get to this place where it looks like, hey, uh, we're not going to be able to, to do anything about those chariots of iron. Judah stops. These, these people are a bit too strong for us. They have technology that we don't yet have. What are the Israelites doing? They're trusting in that moment in their own strength instead of God's. They rely on their own human understanding instead of God's. And I have to wonder, as the people of God, how often do we find ourselves doing the same thing? God says, hey, Christian, Member of my family, you, you were to live life in these particular ways. And we say, man, you don't, you don't know how, how this is going in my life, God. You don't, you don't have the friends that I have. You don't have the spouse that I have. I can't honor you and obey you in these particular ways because I don't have the power to do it. God has already told them, oh, you can go to this land. I've already given it to you. You just have to go. God only needed to be trusted, and this is only the beginning. The seed of doubt and disbelief in God begins to grow like wildfire in the rest of the book. Verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshin and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now, as we've journeyed through the text together, we begin to see some patterns growing. The tribes are going into their inherited territories, but they are not doing what? They're not driving out the inhabitants that God told them to drive out. Benjamin doesn't do it. Joseph lets a man and his family go free for helping them get into the city. Manasseh doesn't do it because, well, the Canaanites just wouldn't leave. So as Israel grew in force, they decided that it would be to their economic advantage to use the Canaanites in forced labor. Yeah, we're, we're basically doing what God told us to do, right? 
We're, we're still expressing some sort of dominion over these people. We're just going to use them so that they would work for us. Is that what God told them to do? Is that how God told them to, to come into the promised land? That's what we often use as a tactic for self-justification, don't we? Listen, brothers and sisters, hear this as we look to the text. Success in this life does not always equal faithfulness. Success in this life doesn't always mean that you are doing what you are supposed to be doing according to the will of God as he's laid it out in his word. Now, the rest of the tribes just seem to have given up. Verse 29 And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzeb or of Helba or of Aphik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bethanath. So... They lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. And then verse 34, there's not even a a hint of faithfulness on Dan's part. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted, verse 35, in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Chapter 1 is essentially an update on how God's people have done in settling the land. Joshua chapter 23 tells them that they are to settle the land, that he had already given it to them, and what they are to do and how they are to go about it. And chapter 1 of Judges says this is what they've done. This is how they've gone about doing just that. And we could actually give them a grade if we wanted. If we look at the first little section of chapter 1, we see that Judah has done a decent job, right? He's garnered uh, enough success, and then in other areas, he hasn't completely finished his mission, especially when he gets to the chariots of iron, and he says, you know what, God, I'm just going to leave these people there. We're not going to be able to, to do anything with them. We're not strong enough. Some of the others did fine, but Ephraim and on to Dan, they just gave up, it seems. So what is right? Remember that right is up for God to decide. Right is up for God to decide. And so chapter two begins with God's very own assessment. That's the grade that we're actually looking for, right? Look there in the text with me. Chapter two, verse one. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice 
What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. This isn't the kind of thing that you want to hear from creator God, is it? I've done this for you and you have not obeyed me. It it, it makes us think back to the Garden of Eden as uh, Adam and Eve had committed that very first sin. They had taken a fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and God finds them and says, what is it that you have done? What is it that you've done? God had given them perfect fellowship in the garden. He had given them everything they possibly needed, a beautiful land, plentiful food, husband and wife, perfect relationships, And they didn't obey him. But thankfully, here in the text in Judges, the people hear this and they receive it. Verse 4, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, meaning weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. They've heard the word of the Lord. They realized their sin and they seemed to repent. The rest of the book of Judges is going to to be us seeing if they actually did. We've covered a lot of ground in the text, but what does it mean for us today as God's people? How do we look at the book of Judges and, and see what do you have for us, God? First, small areas of disbelief produce large areas of disaster. Small areas of disbelief produce large areas of disaster. I remember being in middle school I was home alone one afternoon with one of my best friends, and we got this idea to play with fire, as a lot of middle school boys do. Uh, it's not suggested that you play with fire uh, without your parental supervision, okay? That's not a good idea. Your pastor is giving you an illustration. Uh, I, I'm not condoning this behavior. In fact, you'll see uh, why it comes to backfire in just a moment. But I, I did at least what I thought was common sense at the moment, and we, we decided we're going to play with fire, so we're going to take the fire outside. And so we go to the backyard, and uh, maybe you've heard me share this story before, but we start lighting random pieces of grass in the field behind us on fire. And it was fun at first. Uh, you know, light a, piece of, uh, light a piece of brush on fire and then blow it out, and, uh, and we both had lighters, okay? And, uh, and so we were just having a, a good old time just lighting things and blowing them out. And then all of a sudden, the wind picked up and it started taking that fire uh, to different pieces of grass. And at some point, we were not able to keep up with the rate in which the wind was blowing it onto the other pieces of grass. And we had ourselves quite a fire. And all of a sudden, I'm worst case scenario thinker in in stress. I'm like, this whole whole field is going to, go up in flames. I, I, am, I am doomed. I'm absolutely doomed. I, I thought that I was just having a little fun by, by lighting one piece of grass, and now all of a sudden I have this huge fire. Now, God said, you haven't obeyed. So chapter 2, verse 3 I will not drive them out before you and they will become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. You're getting what you wanted. 
Small areas of disbelief, little things that you thought weren't a big deal, Israelites. The little things like not driving out some of the people after you had already experienced great success is going to prove disastrous. You're getting what you wanted. The Israelites had been saying that they could not follow through on God's commands because of various issues. The Canaanites, again, they had chariots of iron, so we won't be able to take possession there. The Canaanites, they just won't leave, so we can leave them there. The people have boxed us in, so we'll just have to remain here. Listen, the people of God kept saying, we can't, but God's assessment in chapter 2 says, you won't. The people of God kept saying, we can't do this, but God's assessment says, you won't do this. It's not that you can't, but that you won't. Some of you in this room or watching online with us today are parents, and you can easily relate to this rhetoric. You've made dinner. Your child is playing in the living room, and you say, hey, go ahead and clean up your mess. Dinner's ready, and you get this phrase, I can't. I'm so tired, right? I'm so tired. Christian, where is it that you are saying, I can't, but God is saying, you just won't. You just won't. Perhaps you've been operating out of good reason, but are failing to operate out of good faith. You say, I can't possibly hear this. I hear this so often. I can't possibly forgive that individual. Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know that the havoc that has been wreaked on my family as a result of that individual's actions? I can't possibly forgive that person. It's unthinkable. And anyone else may look at the situation and say, you know what? You're absolutely right. And for good reason, you can't forgive them. But God says elsewhere in his word. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin and give no foothold, give no opportunity to the devil. You say, all right, I may be looking at pornography occasionally, okay, maybe, maybe I'm looking at it more than that, but still, I, I'm not having an affair. Or you haven't lived with my wife God says, flee all sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, you were bought with a price, dear child, so honor God with your body. You say, man, I know that I'm supposed to be generous with my time and money, but have you seen my bank account? Do you know the job that I have? And the time that I don't have, do you know those things about me? The mark that you are walking by faith is full obedience as a Christian. Opposite of belief is not disbelief, but it is disobedience. Are you saying you can't? But God is saying you won't. And here, as Christians, as members of the family of God, our response in the middle of this is to preach the gospel to ourselves in every area of life. Now, we need to be reminded that God absolutely loves us that he sent his son Christ Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a death that we deserve to die, and that he rose again on the third day, proving that he conquered sin and death so that you could have life and life abundantly. 
And God did not leave us there. He actually sent us a helper, the Holy Spirit, to see that we would actually be victorious in the here and now. You have, been, have not been left alone, Christian. You have not been left alone to figure out how you are to battle and wrestle with the sin that so closely entangles you. You've been given a helper. You've been empowered by the Spirit. God loves you. He's for you. He hasn't left you to figure it out how to deal on your own. He's empowered you to kill sin. Unconquered territory is where the enemy stays, slowly enslaving you, which is what we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Judges. Second, the God who saves is greater than the gods who enslave. Now, don't believe for a second that your sin, Christian, has the final word of you. That you'll die entangled in particular sins that your personality is predisposed to or circumstances developed around you that made it impossible for you to give up particular sins or particular patterns of sins. Listen, our God, the book of Judges is all about this, is a covenant keeping God. The covenant that was made with Abraham in Genesis 15, that God would be Abraham's um, God forever, was not a two-sided covenant, but one. Abraham was put to sleep by God. God ratified it. He shed blood for his part and ours. God said, I made this promise by myself and I will fulfill it. So you haven't sought me out. I sought you out. You haven't pursued me, God says to his children. I pursued you. So when you're faithless, and if you're in the family of God, you know that is ever so frequent. I'll sustain you by my grace. I'll be faithful to the end, the Lord's covenant tells us. The message of Judges is that God is faithful when you are not. You don't think you're going to make it out. You don't think that you're going to be able to overcome sin. You can trust Jesus and find joy in him alone. God has determined it. God has sent his son again. He lived and died. He rose. He began a good work and will be faithful to complete it. Think of the, the beautiful passage, Romans chapter 8, in which he talks about the children of God, that he foreknew us, that he predestined us, and that he called and justified and glorified us, his work in you and for you. What could you give yourself to that is greater than this God? Jesus is the only God, and if you find him that will fulfill you. If you run from him, he will pursue you. If you forsake him, he will not forsake you. You'll find forgiveness in him. And then three, compromise leads to confusion. It's no wonder that God's word is not the source of what is right in our culture. Although we decry that it is right from all sorts of places, it's no wonder that God's word is not the source of what is right. It's no wonder that God's word is often not the source of right in our own homes, if we're honest. It's no wonder that we live in a time where it's the right thing to do that ex to express that gender is fluid, as I mentioned at the beginning, because we have forgotten what God said about gender identity, that it was he who in fact made male and female, and that it is he who gets to shape sexual ethics. 
It's no wonder that we live in a time where the right thing to do is to proclaim racial injustices over and above all other injustices because we have forgotten as a people, even the church, that the greatest injustice is that man would not submit himself to creator God, the one who created him. That that God sent his own son to restore his children back into right relationship with him. That is the greatest injustice, that people would not submit themselves to that God. It's no wonder that we live in a time where the right thing to do is to value the choice of a woman to the destruction of unborn babies because we have forgotten as a people and we're embarrassed to talk about the doctrine of imago dei and would rather first look to ourselves. It's no wonder that we live in a time where the right thing to do is to mock your parents because of their naive thinking and the way in which they raised you because we have forgotten that God himself said, you're to honor them. How did we get here? The the Israelites show us. The the messenger of the Lord says in Judges 2.1 that he had brought them out of Egypt to the land that he had promised he would give them. That he told them that he would never break his covenant. And yet, the people of God forgot the promises of God. They had forgotten the ways in which God had already demonstrated his love and care and covenant faithfulness to them. They had forgotten that God had gone before them in parting the Red Sea. And ever so recently, they had forgotten that God himself had destroyed the walls of Jericho so that they might have the land in which God promised to them. Now, we move quickly from a people who experienced the miraculous hand of God to a people in the next generation who had no regard for him at all. Parents, you're the one that has the responsibility to teach your children to trust God in all areas of life, in your priorities, in your prayer time, in your time management, in your extracurricular activities. What's more important in your home? an application that we have for us in this text. Your children's college choice or their eternal destination. What would your children say? Listen, when God's people heard what they had done, the ways in which they had gone against what God had told them to do, the people of God cried and they heard. The text tells us that they named that place Bochim, the place of weeping. But as we go throughout the book of Judges, we really have to ask, did they repent? Did they hear the goodness and kindness of our God? Did they hear the, 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 that God is a covenant-keeping God who yearns for the fellowship of his people? And did they desire to seek after him and his glory so that he would be known throughout the world? Did they repent? Weeping is good, but repentance is better. This morning, as the people of God here this morning, and those of you who are joined with us online, would you ask the Holy Spirit who has been sent to us as our helper to identify areas in your own life that are in need of repentance, turning from sin and turning to God in obedience?
And for some of you, maybe you're here physically or maybe you're with us online. Maybe you've never repented of your sins. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never submitted yourself before creator God and you would find yourself like Adonai uh, uh, Bikim, Bezek. You would find yourself realizing that you had sinned against a holy God and that you must find yourself in surrender before him so that you would have life. Would you receive the gift of forgiveness from Christ this morning and surrender every area of your life to him? And would we as the people of God desire to do the same? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have called us into your family as your people, that you have not left us alone to our own devices, that you have not left us to fight the battle of sin alone, that you have sent a helper, that we have been empowered to fight sin, to kill it. God, we we pray this morning that you would raise us up as your family, as individuals in this family, to love, serve, obey, fellowship with you as you have called us. And Father, I pray for the individuals who find themselves stuck in their sin, uh, knowing that they have made little decisions day after day in not fighting the sin in which keeps them so entangled. I pray that you might give them the presence of your spirit, the power of your spirit to fight that very sin and that they would repent of it today, that we as your people would find ourselves repentant before you and that we would walk this morning by faith and repentance. God, would you, would you build us up in your name Would we be a people who look to your word as the source of life, as the source of truth, what is good and right amidst a culture who would do things in the way that they themselves would see as right. God, help us to be a people who are demonstrating your glory in every area of our life, that we would be submitting ourselves before you for your name, for your renown. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.